What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Ring That Bell Podcast. Presented by Branded Sports. AJ, your host here. Tonight, we have an amazing show for you guys. Um, Goody, what's up, man? How you doing? I'm doing all right, brother. Happy to be back with you guys. Potok. What's good? I, nah, no, nah, I'm betless tonight, so I feel good about myself. <laughs> <laughs> Alex, what have you been up to? Uh, nothing much. Just back at school. Back on the school grind, unfortunately. Remember so those tonight, tonight we're joined by a very special guest, NBA writer and author of the book, Tanking to the Top, Jerome Weitzman. Thank you for joining us. Um, let me be the first to say congrats. Um, this book is the hot commodity around town now, um, which it should be because it was a fantastic read. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you. Guys. No problem. No problem. Um, so is it true that you... <laughs> you interviewed over 150 people for this book? That is true. That is true. I, usually when someone starts, is it true? I get worried about where the question <laughs> is. Uh, that is true. Yes, that is, that is true. I'm not, yeah, that, yes, I can promote that. That is true. <laughs> That's remarkable. I, I can only imagine how much time and, and, and effort it took to get every single one of those interviews. Uh, yeah, <laughs> definitely. Uh, but that's the fun part, right? That's the, uh, like I find the reporting of the book stuff is um, I find that fun. Right. Um, it's when you sit there and like, you know, talking to people, I like talking to people. I work alone. So it's nice, you know, getting to speak to people, not the wall, you know, and right. not just be on Twitter all day. Um, so you get to speak with people, learn new things. That sounds very corny, but just, you know, it's great when you talk to somebody and they tell you a story and you're like, Oh my God, I didn't know that. And I can envision how that goes in a book already. So that part's great. Writing it can be like a little overwhelming, but that's a separate thing. Right. So to bounce off of that, um, the book's been out for about what six, seven months now. Is that a, is that correct? Oh well. So how long's COVID been going on, right? So it came out March seventeenth. <laughs> so I, I had that lucky timing. So it came yeah. out. I think it was the week that NBA shut down, which is really like kind of the week that sort of led the way um, right. for the country, right? So yeah, it's March seventeenth, whatever that is now. Yeah. So you you were or you still are living in New York and. Um, yes. Having to go back from there to Philadelphia to do the interviews. Um, how difficult was that? Um, <laughs> it was not fun. <laughs> um, a lot of the interviews were done over the phone, but I was basically, um, I don't know, I followed the team all the, what, I'm losing track of seasons now, year seasons, 2018, 2019, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, so I followed them basically the entire season, 2018, 2019. So I followed them 2018, 2019. So I would go back and forth. I have two little kids at home also, or we just give, my wife had just given birth then to our second kid uh, nice. that January. Oh, right. So, um, yeah, no, it was uh, a lot of time spent on the New Jersey Turnpike, um, <laughs> driving back and forth, which was not ideal. Um, not a lot fun. of times there's, I, I used to know the name of the rest stop. I don't remember. There's one I would always stop off on the way home and like you scan the snack aisles and like, okay, I can either get like the M&Ms and the gummies and the <laughs> chips and be fat or like try to get something healthy. And then you realize that's not going to happen. No. So you, know the, you got the fat stuff. It was not, not good for my health, but you do it. You do it. <laughs> All right. So obviously we went over, you interviewed a lot, a lot of people. So out of the people you interviewed, who do you feel were the most passionate about the process you mean like pro sam hinky pro yes pro sam hinky um okay well so uh a couple things so a lot of people i interviewed i can't name them right that's fine on background so it means they don't like you know they mm -hmm. I can use the information 
um, but you don't name them. Still, that being the case, the answer is going to be the rights to Ricky Sanchez, guys. Um, <laughs> Spike Eskin and Michael Levine, they are like, I think they were more pro Sam Hinky than Sam Hinky himself, right? Um, <laughs> they, uh, those are the guys. You're talking about in, inside, that's outside the NBA, and I kind of use them as like a representative of the fan base to represent the fan base, the faction of the fan base that was supporting the whole, um, I don't want to say experiment, I don't like that word, strategy. Um, <laughs> The um, from people there, I mean, there are people who worked for him who thought he was. He has a lot of people. How do I phrase this? There are a lot of people who believed in what he was doing, um, who were both worked for him and both so outside, right? People who like worked for other teams who would like and want to believe that there is a place in the NBA for some creative thinking and to do things properly. It doesn't necessarily mean that like they agree with every decision he made but the idea that he hired a person he outlined the specific vision he was going to do supposed to be on the same um, page as ownership um and that there should be a space for that right for like a guy to carry out the job and not have to worry about keeping the job within two years um so a lot of people within the nba again other teams believe in that sort of thing and believe in critical thinking and were very in favor of what hinky was doing even maybe not agreeing with every decision like maybe they would have brought in you know a veteran point guard to help run the offense or things like that, as opposed to punting every game. But just the idea of this is somebody who had a plan, was committed to it. Um, was, it was a coherent plan. It was supposed to be, everyone was supposed to be on board with it. And that just, the rug was sort of pulled down pulled out from under him pretty quickly. Right. Okay. So I'm going to come out with a really big question right now because <laughs> sure. everyone loves this guy as a Sixers fan. So in your book, you write that Joel Embiid was almost a cavalier. What happened and why didn't Gibson take a shot on our big guy? The, uh, the, so he, he had the greatest work out of the people who were there. So he was coming out of Kansas, if you remember. He was coming out of Kansas. And he, right. was, he was Andrew Wiggins' teammate. And most people, the top three picks were, the top three prospects, excuse me, were um, Embiid, Wiggins, and uh, Jabari Parker. In no order. Most people had Wiggins as the number one and Parker as number two. Um, Wiggins was more of a sure thing. Embiid had just been playing basketball, what was it, four years then? Whatever it was, you know, he had started late. Um, so he shows up in Cleveland, and he has the great people like who were there said it was the greatest workout they'd ever seen. Like they, I think the quote in the book was like, it was the second coming of Olajuwon. Um, he was dropped, so he went up against Vitaly Potapenko, who was a former NBA player. Not great, but it's, you know, he's still in shape now. He's an assistant coach with the Cavs at the time. Right. Seven feet, through, like, I don't know, 280 pounds. Like a big guy who played years in the NBA. Um, man strength, right? Like, you know, adult right. strength versus very skinny Joel Embiid. Um, and Embiid, I think the quote was Embiid threw him around like a rag doll, was just dominated him. Then at the end of the workout, Embiid says, like, starts taking, taking three some uh, corner, I think. And goes, hits the first one, says, Griff to David Griffin, the team GM. Griff, you got to take me number one. Hit the second one. Come on, Griff, I'm so good. <laughs> hit the third and hit like, I don't remember the number now, seven, eight in a row, trash talking after each one. Greatest workout. They have the interview with him. They love him. He's asking a ton of interesting questions. Like he's asking him about why they have um, jerseys retired. I believe it was why they have jerseys, reti uh, retired jerseys hanging from the walls in the practice facility he was just like inquisitive as he could be inquisitive and right. engaging and interesting um and then the next day he wakes up and his foot is killing him and it turns out he has a fracture in his foot he had hurt it a couple weeks earlier um mm -hmm. doing a workout oh, who was it i don't have to remember was it alfaro camino bismack biombo bismack biombo and a workout with bismack biombo they're the same agency and he heard it um and he thought it was just you know 
little strain or something. It turns out he had a fracture. His foot's killing him. He can barely walk. He gets an X-ray. The Cavs realize his foot's fractured. He'll be um, he's going to miss at least a year, if not two. Big guys, it's always a question. And they had a um, Daniel Gilbert had given them a mandate to win. He wanted the team to win immediately, meaning that they didn't have the latitude to pick a player who would miss a year or two. So they could, this was the year after LeBron left. So they were very concerned about. Um, you know, bouncing back. I remember Dan Gilbert had written the Comic Sans letter saying, we'll win a championship before the so-called king. Yeah. prediction. Very wrong. Very wrong. Super uh, <laughs> so, but the idea, like, he wasn't going to take a guy who was going to sit out all year. So they were required to go with the uh, quote-unquote sure thing, which was Andrew Wiggins. Um, I'm not getting confused. Is that, I guess, and then they traded, ended up trading. LeBron ended up coming back, right? They ended up... Yeah. Sorry, excuse me, I missed the comment. The comic sense thing was a couple was earlier. I apologize in that one, but just to give an idea in terms of what Gilbert's thinking was, right? He was someone who wanted to win right away. They ended right. up uh, trading Wiggins for Kevin Love. Um, it's, it's a really interesting NBA what if, like what would have happened if they had kept Embiid? Would he have been traded? Would he have played with LeBron? Um, and Milwaukee ended up going, imagine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Milwaukee ends up taking Jabari Parker number two, and Embiid was like for Sam Hinkie and the Sixers, he was perfect because he had superstar potential and he. Um, you know, they, they didn't care if he would be out for a year. Not even that. It was almost like a bonus. Okay, we'll get another lottery pick next year. Right. You can still get them ping pong balls. Exactly. Exactly. Just to bounce off that, what if, let's say, the Cavs did take Embiid and we ended up with Jabari or Wiggins? What do you <laughs> think, like, the process would look like then? Because Embiid, to me, and everybody, kind of just is the epitome of the process. So what do you think would have happened if the Sixers ended up with someone like Wiggins or Jabari Parker? They'd be in trouble, but the, so what's interesting about that is, in a way, it would it would be an issue for Sam Hankey. So the whole the the idea behind his the process, what he was doing, the strategy was that, you know, I'm gonna look at my roster. Sam, let me back up. People always label Sam Hankey as a tanking guy, and people like who know him say that's not true, right? That's not he doesn't. It's not like a one trick pony. It's the idea that I want to win a championship. I'm gonna assess what my roster is and see the best way of doing so. So Sam Hinkie had come from the Houston Rockets. They never tanked. One, ownership didn't want them to, but also those Rockets had Yao Ming and Tracy McGrady. They had two superstars, so they didn't need a tank. For them, it was about getting Shane Battier typed and trying to find the guys who could supplement around the edges, and you work on that, and that's how you can get the championship. He starts interviewing or looking or gets the Sixers job. It's like, here's my roster. This is point A. I need to get to point B championship. What's the best way to do so? My current roster is not going to do it. Um, what I do know is look at NBA history. Um, 99% of the championship teams have superstars who are drafted in top five picks. So that's what I need. I'm going to get those. But the draft is really hard and you miss on the draft picks a lot or getting a lottery, you know, teams miss a lot. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to look at like blackjack, you know, it's going to be an odds game. So I'm going to take four or five swings of the plate is what he would, uh, the phrase he would use, swings of the plate. Mm-hmm. If I go two for five, that's all I need. Um, <laughs> So it's, it's a questionable strategy because you're saying, I, I, I admire the humility to admit I'm not, you're not going to be perfect in it. I also question whether you should be so um, forthrighted, whether, whether you should so willingly give up the idea that, no, I know I'm good at this. I can be better than others. I can nail more than two out of five picks or three out of five or whatever it is. To answer your question, that would have been another miss, right? So yeah, Wiggins yeah. by Parker would have been another swing and a miss, <laughs> which is fine. But you start piling those up, and you have that, and Jaleel Okafor, and Nolan's Noel, and you suddenly, you know, oh. you, run, you run into trouble. Um, basically, what I think he did is he got mm. two out of five. He didn't draft Ben Simmons, but that was a number one pick. So he would have right. drafted 
something. And so yeah. that, that was his work. So, you know, basically went to, was it two for four, um, which, you know, Simmons and Embiid hit, Noel and Okafor miss. That's okay. That's okay. And you know what? It's good enough, right? You got your two superstars, but it's mm-hmm. right. Like that's literally, that's the line right there, the line demarcation right there. Yeah. So Embiid, in, well, in your book, you write that Embiid wasn't always sold on Philadelphia, that he had to be sold in it. Um, how did that go about? That he wasn't sold on Philadelphia. It was um, it's a few things. One, he had – I mean, his, basically, his, well, one, you don't have a choice, right? That's one. The team drafts you, that's whatever. He wanted to go to L.A., I think, because he was comfortable. And Bede's very much a, a creature of habit and, like, he's pro-comfort. And especially then, it makes sense, right? You were new. He was new to America, new to the NBA, new to basketball. Mm-hmm. He had been living in L.A. a little bit with his agent, Arn Tellum, at the time. Um, why not be comfortable? Um, tell him though was if he's from Philadelphia, I forget, or he's got Philadelphia connections. I think he's from Philadelphia. Yeah, that's um, what you're he, thank you. See, I should have read the chapter. <laughs> <laughs> Please feel free to quote me to myself. I just like. um, and uh, and his other agent, Francois and I am, and I hope I'm pronouncing that name right. He was um, he was sort of his international agent. Um, he also was played. I had gone to high school in Philly and played high school ball in Philly. Um, so they were just kind of sold and beat on it on the idea that this is, you know, a good market for you and it's going to be a good city and a good place for you. Um, they like the group liked Sam Hinkie. They're fans of what he did and the way he approached things. Also, again, it wasn't Embiid's choice, right? And Sam Hinkie, if we learned anything from him, like he's not going to, you don't want to come here. I don't really care. I think you're the player I want. I'm going to draft you. And let's see what you do. Uh, you deal with that. Okay. <laughs> so also in your book, I read that. Uh, Jalil Okafor was basically one of the main issues with Hinky's run here in Philly, and it could be the reason why it ended. Um, can you walk us through that? Sure. The Okafor thing's fascinating, right? So it's a few things. So he um, he fall. He, it's it shows how context and how there's so much gray area in all of this, right? So they draft Okafor. Um, they don't take. They, let me back up. They, the guy they were looking at, and they like if hindsight you look at, they should have taken was Porzingis, right? Right. Before they don't get a meeting with Porzingis, um, they don't get to work him out privately because Porzingis is a, for a couple of reasons. Porzingis is an agent. This guy named Andy Miller. One wasn't a fan of the process. He had he was Nolan's Noel's agent. Didn't like how things were going around there. Um, wasn't a fan of like, sort of the whole culture and development situation. Oh, that's, you know, quote unquote, Hinky's fault, not Hinky's fault. He's had no Noel there. If you're an agent, you don't want to lottery picks, um, two top five picks, play the same position on the same team. Just nothing good comes from that for you. Right. Yeah. Um, not necessarily Hinky's fault. That's one people focus on the fact he didn't get a meeting. He didn't get a meeting with or work out with Okafor either. And he still took him. So he could have taken Porzingis, but in the end they felt like Okafor was the best pick for them. The guy they really wanted was D'Angelo Russell. Um, they needed a point guard, but the Lakers took him at number two. Um, Nobody in the Sixers loved Okafor. They weren't in love with Okafor, but he was the number one prospect coming out of high school. They figured, you know, at the least you get three, you um, get a decent year out of him and you can always, either he's really good or you flip him the way they did Michael Carter Williams. Right. And right, like, yeah. you know, he puts up good numbers. There's no reason to believe had, and we'll get to this, but had Okafor's um, not had some of the off court issues that he had, like he would have put up 17 and eight with that team, right? Empty numbers, but he would have put up numbers and been mm-hmm. first team all rookie or whatever it is. And maybe somebody wants him, right? Maybe he's, there's some shine on him that you can kind of flip him. 
Um, the issue is that they had two centers already in Embiid and in Nolan's Noel, which again is what I would disagree with Hanky. Hanky's whole thing was, you know, wasn't worried about positions. He wasn't worried about fitting in that moment. Just like asset accumulation, get the stars, best, take my best shots. asset available. Right. Correct. Yeah. And the idea exactly. And his quote he would say is like, okay, so if we end up with Tim Duncan, Ben Wallace, and Akeem Olajuwon, and I think those are the three centers you would mention. That's a good problem to have. I always think, and some people bring it up, I don't think if you put those three guys on the same team together starting at the age of 20, they become who they are, right? I think no. yeah. it works a little differently. But that's, you can differ. Um, the other thing is, so Okafor comes in, and he's got some demons that they're probably not prepared for to deal with. Like, he had, it's a horrible story. He had, his mother had... Um, his mother had died in front of him. You you can remember AJ maybe because you remember more of it than I do now. But what, how old was he? Was he was he ten or twelve? I'm forgetting. Um, I I want to say I think or younger I, even. I think it was I eight. I think it was eight. It all, it all blends into each other, right? Mm-hmm. So he was eight years old. His mother started coughing. It turns out she had, I don't remember exactly, but basically her lungs collapsed and she ended up uh, dying. And he thought she was joking. He was like playing, haha, stop coughing, and they end up calling an ambulance and she died. It's a horrible story and understandably that sat with him for a while. Right. And they were taught, you know, there are a few later quotes from him saying like things along the lines of sometimes I worry about, um, you know, I, I feel bad that I didn't do enough. That I didn't take it seriously enough, quick enough that I worry about losing other people in my life, things like that. He never really confronted or dealt with them, gets to the NBA and he starts um, going out and drinking and doing things, hanging out downtown and things like that. Um, and the Sixers are aware of it, and they kind of tried to tell him to stop, but wasn't really working. And they didn't have the proper infrastructure. When we talk about like veteran leadership or coaches who connect with players or accountability, these are some of the things we talk about. This all crescendos kind of in the end. Um, this, uh, the clip everyone's familiar with, the, uh, when he gets into the fight with the uh, fans outside Boston, outside the Boston bar, and is cursing and yelling, and things like that. And that ends up on tv adds up to tmz and like and gets to adam silver adam silver's angry and you know i got a quote from the former six sixers security staffer saying the nba league office called him saying commissioner wants to know why one of our players is on tv and no one from the sixers has called us and it's it's really sad like it's sad to look back at how this sort of derailed um and that for ownership was the last straw and a bunch, you know, there are all these different wind swirling, but that was the last straw in terms of the public perception and the pressure from within the league and the league office to, we have to make a change here. And that ended up leading to lawyers were bring in, were brought in for depositions, things like that. And that ended up being the end for Hinky in Philly. And see, I'm not as big as a Hinky guy as everybody else. As you said, he, to me, he had too many misses, but that's, that's brutal. It's just absolutely brutal. Yeah, so some of it, again, it's a context, right? So some of it is on him. Like, you don't know who you guys are drafting and make sure you're prepared for them and you have the proper infrastructure and culture around them, people set up to help. But it's also just, I'm going to say bad luck. It just, you know, some things things went badly. Even that night in Boston, right? I think they blew like a 10-point lead or something late. Um, yeah. Back score. Yep. Like, if they win that game, if they don't blow it, that might not happen, right? It's these little uh-huh. things that, like, in the end of it, these little tiny things that end up making a difference. Right. That was Goody's boy. Okafor. I love Ja, yeah. I love Ja. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, fake, I got his jersey and everything, man. He the fake, he the still, fake ID. <laughs> That's good. That's good. <laughs> so, um, everyone knows about the infamous uh, Colangelo burner gate. What actually happened? <laughs> 
Like, what, what are some of the details that everyone doesn't know? Um, okay, so I'll, so I'm, I'm going to do something like when you're promoting a book, you're not supposed to say this, but I'll give context after. Like, I the Burner Gate stuff in terms of that chapter was more so than any other chapter. That was me kind of recapping what was already publicly available. A lot of it, right? <laughs> um, I yeah, I did not talk to Brian Colangelo. I didn't. I have comfortable saying that. Um, you know, other people. Yeah, just. <sighs> I don't have I don't have much more clarity on that in terms of specifics than other people do, right? What I can say is a couple things that people might know. I think I put this in the book. I mean, one, it just and it's interesting, and you know, the six the, as they write in the story, right? The Ringer they had reached out. The Ringer reached out to the Sixers, notified them about the one burner account they had found, you know, they were looking into, and then three more disappeared and all that. And while that's going on, Brian Colangelo is still scouting games, um, scouting prospects in uh, L.A. in L.A. gym. And there's a, uh, you know, people there saw him when the story came, when the story was published, when the story went live, he was scouting in a gym. People there saw him, you know, you could see the ringer has that green background, right? right. Um, at least it did. So people saw him like sitting there, the green background on his phone, right? And him walking out. Um, <laughs> Yo. Which is pretty, so I don't, why he was there, it's a little weird. Like why he was there, if he knew he had to have an idea the story was coming down because they were in touch with, they were in touch with the, uh, the Sixers and the Ringer were in touch somewhat, right? Why he's in public. I mean, I don't know if it's naive. If he, th- I don't know. I don't know. Um, the other the part crazy is the story. Yeah. So the other part is the, the thing you learn as you go back and dig into Brian's background is that the Sixers were a horrible, um, this Sixers team and following in Sam Hinkie's footsteps was a horrible fit for him. Cause if you go back to look at, things he said when he was 25, 30 years old, and he talked to people around him and things like that. And he was always somebody who was very aware of what other people thought and of his image um, and of the idea that he had to make a name for himself in the NBA and, you know, not be just Jerry Colangelo's son. Like he was asked about nepotism and things like that. So like, you know, he mentioned when he's younger that he's worried about the charge and he's worried about being not Jerry's son and things like that and showing that he's like a true NBA executive and he knows what he's doing. So you think about that and you think about then coming in and he's following in the shadow of Sam Hinkie and like a guy who's got this huge reputation, right? And everyone loves, mm-hmm. he's a cult hero and that is not a good fit for him, right? That is not a good fit for somebody who's very aware of what other people think. And, you know, in hindsight now, 2020, you look back like, oh, he was obviously really bothered by it, right? In terms of the Twitter accounts and things like right. that. So it's interesting if you look back and kind of think like, okay, this was uh, probably not a good hire and a good idea from the beginning. Funny, it's funny that he thought like that because I, I feel like he, he proved himself enough when he was in Toronto. Um, he felt like that. Like he was always telling like someone like, but then it was like, there was at the beginning. Yeah. And he felt like that. Other people didn't. Know. Right. He was always talking about like the Bargnani, why he thought the Bargnani pick was actually good and things like that. Um, <laughs> Trying to make that seem like it was the right deal. Right yeah, now. exactly. So he's just very aware of this stuff. It's interesting. Okay. I need to get something off my chest right now. You state in the book that Markel Fultz never wanted to play in Philadelphia. He actually told his guy Tappen that he wanted to avoid Philly and New York because of the big markets. So please help me understand why Philly drafted this kid. Uh, <laughs> I mean, he was the um, – he was the um, – Consensus number one pick, the consensus top prospect. And like, well, I'll give them, excuse me, where I'll forgive them or give them credit or whatever is like when you look at now, the kind of player who would be perfect, um, perfect fit in a bridge or partner 
for um, Simmons and Embiid. Like that's the, the player who Markel Fultz was supposed to be. That's that player, right? A big guard who can handle, shoot, create guard, guards, defending point guard, stuff like that. Like that's the guy. And 98% of talent evaluators and teams felt that. Everyone, everyone basically thought that except the Boston Celtics. So, yeah, again, you want to talk about like noticing the red flags and maybe be a little more aware of some of the background stuff and the personality stuff that you should be aware of when you're drafting guys. That's fair. But in terms of, you know, it's a talent, it's a talent league. And like he was the most talented guy. That's what everyone thought. I just feel that if, if a player flat out notifies you that he doesn't want to be drafted there, I just don't know why you wait. Well, I don't think they knew that either. I don't think he would ever, I don't think that was ever relayed. It was just his feeling. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think if um, do you think if Boston stayed at one, they were still taking Tatum? Do you think they really Danny Ainge pulled, pulled one? Like that? <laughs> that's a that good question. That, no, that's the question. They don't talk about it a lot. Um, I think they would have. I do not know that. I think they would have. Mm-hmm. I think. I do not know. I, that to this day eats at my soul. It hurts. I, I, just having Ben Simmons, Jason Tatum, and and Embiid is just. It's just not fair. I, I think they would have taken Tatum regardless, just because I feel like Boston was a little ballsy when drafting, especially with that Jalen Brown pick. I thought that was a little bit of a stretch, and that ended up working out in their favor. But I, there's no doubt in my mind the Celtics were going to take Tatum number one. They fleeced us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so after everything Colangelo put this team through, is it really true that he helped the Sixers sort of acquire Butler? And if so, how did that kind of work? <laughs> yeah. That's one of my favorite stories. That did not get a lot of pub after, but that's one of my favorite stories in the book. That Brian Colangelo, so he's good friends with – um, <clears throat> excuse me. He's good friends with Jimmy Butler's agent. And after Burnergate, whatever, Jimmy Butler's agent, um, he lives in Toronto. That's where they know each other. He has a 40th birthday party, and Brian Colangelo is there. Um, and Jimmy Butler flies out there and this is what Jimmy Butler then had started out the, um, this was the summer leading up to the Minnesota, you know, blowing everything up in Minnesota. Um, and he knew, he already knew he was gone. And, you know, they're at this dinner and drinks are flowing. And at one point, Jimmy Butler turns to Brian Colangelo and says, tell me about Philadelphia. And Colangelo tells him, if you go there, you'll win a championship. And Colangelo is selling him. Um, there are a couple other interactions, but that's the big one. He spoke to him in New York City at the NBA um, union headquarters that Jimmy Butler was working out and the agent was there and Brian who lives in New York, met them up there. Um, and this goes back the all-star that previous year's all-star game. Um, Colangelo had noticed an interaction between Butler and Embiid um, that he thought he could see there was a connection there. So no, it's really fascinating. And again, it goes back. I think maybe he's a, you know, benevolent man, but I also think the idea that he felt like, if this team wins a championship, that's good for my you – know, I'm the Burnergate thing, fine. But if this team wins, that's going to – like, that will go on my resume, and that matters. And I think that was a big part of it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just the whole Jimmy Butler thing just nah. – I don't – it's the biggest mistake they've made. They, they pushed their team back another, in my opinion, almost probably another five years. If that it, – it's – that, that – it's where this next question comes off of it. It's off topic of the book. Um, how do you think the Sixers fix this mess? And what would you do if you were in the, the realms of GM? Well, it's okay. Two separate questions, right? What do I think they'll do? I think they'll keep – maybe not separate questions. I don't know. Short answers, I don't know. Like, you got to find a take. I think you got to do something with Horford, right? The problem is you're going to have to give something up for him. 
but I might just try to do it. Basically, what you have to do now is you have to really nail your fit stuff, right? You have to nail right. your fits. Like, find specific guys who you think this guy's undervalued. It's a bad example, but a good one. So it didn't work, but like kind of what Houston do with Robert Covington, right? They gave up a ton. I'm not saying that's the exact, the analogy is not perfect, but the idea is this guy's in the market. If we think we get him, he can be more valuable to us than he is to them because he's going to let us play a certain way and he fits around our guys and yada, yada. Um, you're going to have to do that stuff. And then at some point, the Simmons and B conversation is going to come up. And what's changed now is I, the conversation with those two, the partnership used to be, can they work? Now, somewhat of it's going to somewhat have to be, or at some point they might, sometime soon they might reach the point where it is, man, we are stuck. This might be trading one of them might be our only chance at getting out of the mud here, right? Just taking a swing right. here and trying to do like, you know, a one for three, you know, you trade Simmons for two shooters and a point guard. I'm making it up, right? Whatever it'd be. And, uh, and build it around and beat and things like that. Um, they're not there yet. Um, there'll be some options this year and maybe like, you know, the, the, uh, the cap stuff is um, all going to be interesting and different given COVID and everything like that. So maybe you have some teams looking to sell off guys. Obviously Chris Paul's the name people are talking about. I don't know how they get him. There's a million things like that, um, but they're going to have to get creative. I don't I know that's not a good answer, but they're going to have to get creative. Yeah. I mean, I think so today, Billy Donovan just got hired by the Bulls, and I think that could be very, very big for the Sixers in the fact that he used to coach Horford back in college. At Florida. Oh, I, mean, I didn't and, even think of that. And they need a veteran big. They have all these these young bigs, and I think they need a vet big to come in. And Yeah, but they're not – that contract, you see, you can get a vet big on a one-year deal. You don't get a vet big on a three – with three years and, you know, $80 million left. Yeah, I mean, I, I hear you, but – that's just something that, in in my opinion, is something to look for if they want to reunite. You know what I mean? You, you don't know. Um, That's it, a very young team, and they do need some vets. So You got to move that contract one way or another. Regardless. regardless. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, going off of that, Billy Donovan to the, to the Bulls, Sixers need a coach. The big two names are Ty Lue and D'Antoni. Who do you think they go with, and do you see the fit with Mike D'Antoni with the Sixers? Um, my, I don't know who they're going to go with in terms of who I think. I really don't. Um, it's hard to get a read on. You know, we talk to people, it's hard to get a read on. Um, if it was me, I sometimes I say I think it's going to be Ty Lue, but I think I'm informing that based on my own perspective. Like from the outside and knowing what I do a little bit, like he's the guy I would want if I were them. Like he's the guy I think they should be trying to get. Um, that doesn't mean they're going to get him, right? Or it doesn't mean they want him. I, I do not know. I don't think they know. And people, you know, around the league or involved in coaching stuff, like they don't know who the Sixers want either. Um, the D'Antoni thing's interesting. I mean, for him, it's like kind of, I don't love it. I, he's never been of a, you know, they need some accountability stuff. That's not his strength. Um, the interesting question with him is, you know, if he's truly an offensive genius, he might be. I don't know. If he, or let me phrase. Like with him, the way his teams have always been great offensively, right? But they've always right. played a similar style, one that I wouldn't – doesn't seem to be one that would fit the Sixers' personnel in terms of mm-hmm. shooters, playing mm-hmm. fast, spread pick and roll, things like that, right? And he's been great with that. Or isolations with James Harden this year. And I guess that's a good example of a guy and why he's so good. He's willing to adapt to his personnel. But it's always been spread the floor, shooting, playing fast, right. things like that. That does not seem to mesh with the Sixers. Um, 
that said, maybe D'Antoni is actually like, you know, an offensive genius. And I guess the, if you're hiring him, you're saying that's the case. And we think he can unlock the Simmons and Bede partnership. He can help unclog that in a way that we don't know if anyone else could. It's really difficult to do. Um, that's a very specific gamble, though. And you better be right about that if you're bringing him in. Where I think Ty Lu has the background, the skill set in terms of being, he's dealt with high profile stars. He's with a team under the microscope. Um, with some weird team that has a lot of weird stuff around it, drama, things like that. His exes and O's. I don't pretend to be an expert in that. People know, say he's good. Um, story, things like that. So that'd be the guy I'd want um, if I were them. But I have no idea what they're going to do. Yeah, to me, Dan Tony just doesn't make any sense for this team. I, I feel if they bring him in, it's it's the first step into getting rid of one of the two. Um, I just don't see how it fits with both of those guys here, especially with you, what you said that uh, he likes spacing and it's just the spacing has been awful. You don't have that. Yeah, so. Right, exactly. But maybe, but maybe then he's the guy who can create spacing, right? It's like a cause and effect thing. So I don't know. It'd be really interesting to see. It, it would. Um, so um, I'm a really big fan of Wes Unsell Jr. Um, what, do you, what do you feel about him? Um, I mean, so, okay. Can I poke fun of you a little bit? Yeah. What, what makes you a big fan of him? Um, so Denver has been in the top, um, 10 defense since he's been under their realms. And from what I read on the internet, I mean, it's the internet, but, um, he's had his hand in all the development of these young guys, including Michael Porter Jr., Jamal Murray, um, no, uh, Jokic, um, the guys to come off the bench. It's just what everything I read tells me that he could help this Sixers team blossom. But at the same time, he's a first time, he would be a first time head coach. So it's hard to bring in somebody who would be a project. So the thing, okay, I agree with you on that. The assistant coach thing, and we do this with assistant coaches and assistant GMs and whatever. I, I mean, I can tell you like what people say around the league, or my free, you know, I'm not around that team. I don't talk to people about Wes Unsell Jr. very frequently. So, like, yeah, I can make a few calls now about him. But, like, you know, if you ask me about a Sixers assistant, X, well, I might have more of an idea because I'm, you know, around those teams right. more. Um, but, I man, like, I have no idea. Like, I know people – I've been around. I've seen enough examples where guys get credited for things that they were actually, you know, assistant GMs or coaches get credited for things that they actually had nothing to do with. Um, and just they happen to be around when something happened and they're really good at branding or marketing themselves, Right. Um, so I don't, that, I just don't, I, I can't say anything about that. People say West Sunset Jr. is really good. I do not know. Um, I would go based, like, all I can answer that is the same, you know, we, the same stuff we read about, you know, mm -hmm. you and I are reading about, um, which again is on me, I guess I could have, uh, if you told me to go look up West Sunset Jr., get some, get you some details on him, <laughs> I'd make some calls and I'll come back with some <laughs> informed opinions, you know, but in terms of like, I can, people yeah. say he's really good. People say he's really good. And you know, the, the, the same stuff you talked about. Defense. You know who was also uh, a good assistant coach who developed players? Brett Brown. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good well, – yeah, but <laughs> it's a funny example. But, he, but it also shows, right, so like – I mean, it depends how much you think you develop players in San Antonio, but it also shows like they're different jobs. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting, right? It's interesting. Um, he hasn't been brought in yet. I – 
I'm repeating. Like, I don't think they know what they want yet. Sixers. Right. Yeah. Like, I don't think they know what they want. Anything. I, we don't, we still don't know who has total control, the, the GM right. brand or the ownership. Cause you hear something new every day. You hear that ownership has wanted Dan Tony since he was an assistant with Brett Brown. And then you hear that Elton brand is the one making the choice. So it's like, uh, it, it's What's not looking mean? up here in, in Sixers land. <laughs> Yeah, but yeah. uh it is tough to be you guys i will not argue. Yeah, yes it is it is not fun <laughs> it is not fun but um your own thank you so much for your time um really appreciate it uh your book was fantastic i loved everything about it thank you i appreciate that thank you having me and thank you for the uh the kind words that's still available everyone could buy it you guys tell your friends yep yes sir i'm gonna buy it tonight yeah. There you go. That's what I like to hear. No, I appreciate it. I got it. I got you. Thank you. Thank you you so much, Thank you. My pleasure, guys. That was Jerome Weitzman talking about his new book. Um, Great, dude. Some things things I I didn't know in there, some things that I did know, but for everyone who didn't read or didn't read the book, I highly, highly, highly recommend it. It's a very good read, very entailed, uh, in-depth, detail-wise on the whole process. Well, that's all we have for this week's episode of Ring That Bell Podcast. If you can like, subscribe, rate, review, we truly appreciate it. That's all we got for you guys. Tank it to the top. (laughs) Tank it to the top. Buy the book. TTP.